Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. Hey, it's Avery Truffleman, host of Articles of Interest. And I've got to say, I've been a fan of KQED ever since I was a little kid and I would come out to San Francisco to visit my grandma. It was just what we'd always turn on every time we got in the car, every time we were making dinner and turning on the radio. It was always KQED. And then over the years, I've become a massive fan of KQED podcasts because this is local reporting at its best. These are answers to questions you've always wanted to know, interviews with exciting, unusual voices, necessary journalism, all told with love and care and artistry. And did you know that a majority of KQED's funding actually comes from members? It's just people like you and me supporting the programs they love while also getting access to cool events, behind-the-scenes footage, and so much more. If you want to sign up and be a part of this amazing community, visit donate.kqed.org slash podcasts to become a member today. That's podcasts with an S. Thank you for listening, and thank you for your support. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. Coming up on Forum, when Elon Musk bought Twitter, he envisioned restoring the company to what he thought would be a free speech platform. What ensued was chaos, mass firings, the flight of big advertisers, and a massive decline in revenue. In short, Musk bought Twitter, and then he broke it. In her new book titled Extremely Hardcore, Zoe Schiffer, tells the inside story of how company morale cratered after Musk walked through the lobby of the San Francisco headquarters carrying a kitchen sink. Schiffer joins us to discuss how one of the world's richest men committed what she calls one of the greatest unforced errors in Silicon Valley history. That's next, after this news. This is Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. In October of 2022, Elon Musk bought Twitter for $44 billion. What followed was the tech version of the old joke that even Musk himself repeated, how do you make a small fortune in Silicon Valley? Answer, you start off with a large fortune. In her new book, Extremely Hardcore, inside Elon Musk's Twitter, Zoe Schiffer tells the story of how Musk bought Twitter then promptly upended it, firing engineers who knew how the platform worked and replacing them with a circle of yes-men and women who told him what he wanted to hear and how his epic failure of the company he renamed X affected the lives of people who worked for him. Zoe Schiffer, welcome to Forum. Thank you so much for having me. Your book opens with an introduction, and it takes place uh, about four months after he bought Twitter. He's fuming in his private jet coming home from the Super Bowl uh, last year's Super Bowl, uh, because a tweet that he had sent about the Super Bowl wasn't getting nearly the attention that a similar tweet that President Joe Biden had sent out. Um, Why did you start with that anecdote, and what does it tell you about him? It's just such a telling anecdote, because when Elon Musk bought Twitter, he had this enormous bump in popularity. Already, he was a power user on the platform. He was one of the most followed people. 
But over the months that followed, his popularity on the platform started to decline, and he was convinced that an engineer had planted a bug in the algorithm and was suppressing the like counts on his tweets. He thought that it was impossible. He would say things like, these photos of rockets are awesome. There's no way this is getting so little traction. And again and again, people tried to tell him, look, we've looked into the numbers, we've investigated, and it's not a bug. This is just your popularity is declining. It's a natural decline. And he wouldn't hear it. In fact, he would fire people on the spot if they tried to tell him this. And it came to a head at the Super Bowl. Both he and Joe Biden tweeted about the Philadelphia Eagles. Biden's tweet did way better than his. And this to him was a breaking point. So he flies back to the office. He orders 80 engineers to work overnight, kind of rewriting the algorithm. And the next day we woke up and what did we see? An entire feed of Elon Musk tweets. And I think it's so telling because one, he is completely addicted to the platform. And two, he has this kind of childhood where he was really unpopular. And and on Twitter, he kind of gets to be the, the prom king. He gets to be popular all the time. And he's unwilling to part with that attention, which I think is a large reason why he bought the company in the first place. How much of what you just described is ego? How much of it is a lack of insight or introspection? Uh, you know, how much of it is paranoia? I mean, maybe it's all those things. It really is all of those things. He has all of those qualities in spades. And then again, like he is literally addicted to the app. We're all addicted to our phones, but employees would say that he kind of stomps around the office at all hours of the day and night, 3 a.m. He's walking to the bathroom. He's scrolling his phone. He leaves the bathroom. He's scrolling his phone. In meetings, he's scrolling his phone. And he's always on Twitter. So it really is kind of a core part of his life and his identity. You know, I remember when he he, uh, hosted Saturday Night Live, uh, and I think he mentions in the monologue that he's the first person with, was it is it Asperger's syndrome? Yeah. Who hosted the show. Um, so how much of that, you know, uh, that is, is responsible or at least like, you know, sort of a symptomatic of somebody with that? Oh, I think, I mean, I think that that's a big part of his life. It's worth pointing out that Elon Musk is enormously successful. He's built Tesla. He's built SpaceX. But those are companies that don't require an enormous amount of empathy. And even his brother will joke, in the Musk family, Kimball Musk got the empathy gene. Elon Musk did not get it. And that hasn't really been a problem. It obviously hasn't held him back. He's the richest person in the world. He's wildly successful. He was Time Person of the Year in 2021. But when you're running Twitter, this platform that requires an enormous amount of empathy for users and crucially for advertisers, it really does um, end up shooting him in the foot. So you make it clear that this is not a biography of Elon Musk. This is really the story of what he did at Twitter and how it affected the people who work or worked there. Um, But the, the title, Extremely Hardcore, comes from his philosophy, I guess. Tell us about that. Yeah. So this is kind of an overarching theme of the book. And to really understand it, we need to go back to about 2018, because that year, workers in Silicon Valley started to gain a lot of power. And this kind of grew during the pandemic. People were asking for more concessions. They wanted more work-life balance. And bosses were actually giving it to them. Elon Musk does not run his companies that way. He's a very top-down boss. And when he comes into Twitter, he could have come in and fired a bunch of people and taken away the free lunches and just said, the economy is tanking. This has to happen for financial reasons. But he didn't. He imbued that decision with almost a religious fervor. It was a requirement that employees were going to be hardcore. And he linked the desire to have work-life balance almost with 
this idea of the woke mind virus, the idea that if you didn't want to work all the time, if you didn't want to be in the office day and night like he was, if you didn't want to sleep there even, then you weren't part of his hardcore workforce and you shouldn't be in the room. What does that have to do with the, the woke virus? <laughs> so this Because I think of that as being more about, you know, being politically correct or trans rights or whatever it might be. However, like, you know, Ron DeSantis defined it. Yeah. So, I mean, part of the reason that he buys Twitter in the first place is that it's his favorite app and he feels like it's sliding in a bad direction. Why is that? Because he thinks that it's overrun with the woke mind virus. This definition of the woke mind virus is very fuzzy. We're not sure what it means, but it basically means like liberal politics, any form of content moderation. But when he buys Twitter, it seems to also mean free lunches, good coffee, work-life balance, people who want time off at Christmas. It's all kind of this sign of this liberal and lazy workforce that really didn't have anything to to do with the actual people in the room, but it was his belief. And in some ways, it was a self-fulfilling prophecy because he did really treat people that way. Before he buys the company, it's having a hard time. I mean, it's never really been a big, it's never made a profit, I don't think, or if it did, it was small it did, under Jack Dorsey. Yeah. Um, and so, and, and you write in the book that Dorsey's kind of like, seems to be losing interest in the companies, backing away from it. And at one point he tries to bring Musk, who he was friends with, onto the board and the board says, no, it's too risky. Yeah. Um, do you think that that, you know, kind of created a sense of revenge in Elon Musk? So it definitely, Jack Dorsey is the person who puts the wheels in motion on all of this. He'd become convinced that Twitter couldn't be successful as a public company because it was going to be beholden to Wall Street. It was always going to have to make compromises because of that. And so he does want to take it private. He can't do it because of how the stock is set up. And he identifies Elon Musk as the person who he thinks can come in and kind of save it. But he abandons ship before that plan is fully realized. The thing that actually tips Elon Musk over the edge is interesting. It's a little bit different. So there's an interim CEO in the form of Parag Agarwal, who is the former CTO. He's not a particularly strong leader, although he doesn't really have a chance. And when Elon Musk first comes in, he's bought up a bunch of Twitter shares, and he's toying with the idea of actually joining Twitter's board of directors. But what he does is he starts to give Parag mandates. He says, do this, do that. He wants Parag first to ban the Elon Jet account, this account that tracks his private jet. Then he asks Parag to fire Vijaya Gade, who is the former head of legal and policy and who Elon Musk really thought was the chief censorship advocate at Twitter, despite the fact that she had fought for free speech rights on the platform for years. Parag says no, he will not fire this person who's wildly popular in the company and has a pretty good track record internally. And that really is the breaking point where Elon realizes, as a board member, I'm just not going to be able to have the influence that I want to have. And so if I want to change it, I have to buy it. So when when Musk does buy the company, uh, he makes this grand entrance into the headquarters there on Market and 10th Street, carrying a porcelain sink. Um, tell us about that moment, what he thought he was doing when he walked through that lobby and how he was received when he got there. Uh, so that day, he really is just trying to make kind of a silly joke. He tweets out, let that sink in, and he's carrying the sink. So it's a lot of work to go to to just make kind of a, a wink at an uh, internet meme. The but, poor person who had to go find a sink <laughs> I know. Him, right? I did actually try and find that person for my <laughs> book, but I was unable to. But the reaction is mixed. Elon Musk does have this enormous star power, and we kind of see that that day because all summer, he'd been going back and forth about buying the company. He'd really bashed the top executives. And so a lot of employees felt a little apprehensive about him coming in and actually buying it. But that day, he's kind of surrounded by fans. People are taking photos of him. He goes
goes up to the coffee shop on the 10th floor and people are really eager to chat with him and even pitch him their ideas. And there are this kind of group of employees who didn't really fit into Twitter 1.0 and are very excited that someone else is going to come in. They're going to take the reins and they're going to make Twitter faster and more efficient. And then there are, of course, people who are a little more neutral, even negative. But even those people, it's worth pointing out, at the beginning, they're not reflexively anti-Elon. They want to make him successful, if not because they like him, then because they're very dedicated to their colleagues and Twitter users. He comes in and what is he looking for? Because he ends up firing about 80% of the staff. Uh, what what is he? What's the criteria? And how yeah. does that get developed? Well, so he had waived his right to due diligence. And those first few days, what he's doing is he's meeting with small groups of employees. And really, he's trying to understand what he just bought for $44 billion. But even in those meetings, I have a source, Yao, who was sitting there explaining the intricacies of Twitter's backend architecture to him. And he interrupts her and he says, I know how computers work. I've been doing this stuff since the 90s. And so he really did come in with this posture, not of curiosity, but kind of almost of these people are idiots and I want to get rid of them as fast as possible. Why is that? Because he had just saddled Twitter with $13 billion of bank debt. The interest alone on that debt was going to be over a billion dollars come January. And so he wanted to cut costs as quickly as possible. And really, he's just trying to identify who needs to stay in the room so that Twitter doesn't go down and everyone else who's not critical can go. You mentioned there's a number of employees here who are quoted. Yao, you or UA? UA. Yeah, uh, is one of them. I think she was employee number 300, very you know senior, very well respected. Uh, and at one point, they're suddenly all called to a meeting and they, wanted, they want to see the code, computer code that they had yeah. written. And so people start printing out hundreds of pages of code and then they're suddenly told, no, don't, shred it. I mean- this is crazy. Yeah, the first few days of this acquisition are complete madness. Elon Musk hadn't even emailed employees. So he buys the company and employees haven't even heard from him directly. But he comes in with this posse of lieutenants. Twitter employees call them the goons. And they're kind of handing out mandates. They say, one morning, like you mentioned, like, print out all your code, get ready to show it to Elon. People are running around trying to find printers because this Which is, is so retro. I'm like printing it unusual out. Request. Yeah, and then all of a sudden they realize it's a security risk. So they're like, find paper shredders and shred it immediately. And suddenly everyone's running around trying to do that. Someone's puking in a trash can. Like there's a lot of stress in the office that day. But that just started to happen again and again. Every day was bringing a new fire that they had to put out. All right. Lots more to come with Zoe Schiffer. Her new book is called Extremely Hardcore Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Did you work at Twitter? Do you work at Twitter? Or X, I should say now. Give us a call. Send your comments to forum at kqed.org or you can find us on Twitter, X, Facebook, all all the social media platforms were at KQED Forum or give us a call 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786 is the number to call. We're talking about Twitter, extremely hardcore inside Elon Musk's Twitter to be specific with Zoe Schiffer. We'll be right back. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. We're talking about behind the scenes, the stories of Elon Musk's takeover of Twitter, the impact it's had on the platform, the employees and users. We're talking with Zoe Schiffer, managing editor at Platformer. Her new book is extremely hardcore inside Elon Musk's Twitter. And we'd love to hear from you. Do you still use X or Twitter? Uh, if not, why not? Have you changed the way you use it? Did you used to work there? Do you work there now? Might be a little hard. Hard to imagine, Zoe, somebody calling who works there now. I because would it. <laughs> uh, you, yeah, it would be great. So uh, we'd love to hear from you. 866-733-6786. 866-733-6786. You can also reach us on all the social media channels. We're at KQED Forum, or you can email us. It's forum at kqed.org. Just before the break, we were talking about one of the employees you uh, profile in the book, uh, Yao Yue. Um, and she now, she's since sued Musk. and. Yeah. Uh, is actually made some progress. The NLRB, the National Labor Relations Board, uh, is alleging that she was fired as an act of retaliation. How much of that is going on? How many of these lawsuits are in the works? There are thousands of lawsuits in the work. A lot of them are currently in arbitration. There's class action suits. So a lot of employees who were fired, they say, illegally are currently battling Elon Musk, both because they think it's the right thing to do and because an overwhelming majority of them haven't received their severance payments yet. And how much is he on the hook for, potentially? We don't know. I mean, I would be speculating, but employees are arguing that it could be millions of dollars that they're owed. Um, for Yao Yue in particular, she's owed back pay. She could be reinstated to her job or X could have to put up notices in the office. It's hard to hold someone like Elon Musk truly accountable because even the largest fine levied by the SEC or something would not have an enormous impact on his wealth. That said, I think it's important for employees and kind of for society as a whole to show that he cannot do this stuff without any um, cost whatsoever. So he made a number of big changes. The the, the biggest, perhaps, is the name change. Um, You know, the the blue bird had become iconic as a symbol of of the platform, and he changed it to X. What was going on inside the company when that decision that it, maybe it wasn't there wasn't much of a discussion? I don't know. It was maybe just he said do it and they did it. But what, yeah. what was going on? <laughs> I don't think there are much discussion um, in general inside X. When Elon Musk has an idea, he largely tweets it out. Employees see the tweet and that becomes the project internally. And the name change was no different. The letter X has been a preoccupation of Elon Musk since the 90s. One of his first startups was called X.com. And he really had this early idea of melding a social platform with a payments platform. So from the moment he decides to buy Twitter, he knows he's going to change the name to X. He hates the kind of fuzzy bird logo. He hates all of the words that are associated with Twitter. And so he wastes no time in kind of changing it into an entirely new company. What impact has that name changed? Because we all still say, you know, X, formerly known as Twitter. I mean, it's just, I don't know how long we're going to be doing that, but 
it just seems like it, it, it's, it was ruining a brand. Yeah, I mean, I think it was an important symbolic gesture. I know for employees in particular, some really breathed a sigh of relief because it felt like this company that they had been spent so many years building and protecting just no longer existed. And that had been really apparent to people for a long time. And the name change just made it official. Yeah. That said, like I will say some of Lindy Acarino, the new CEO's recent comments where she tries to pretend that the entire history of the company doesn't exist and acts as like a small startup that's only existed for a few months, maybe a year, is laughable to many of us because in many ways the core product does remain the same. We're talking with Zoe Schiffer about uh, inside Elon Musk's Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at 866-733-6786, or you can send us a comment or question via social media. We're at KQED Forum. Um, one of the other folks that you profile, Zoe, is, um, and I, I hope I'm pronouncing it right, Yoel Roth, mm -hmm. who uh, becomes the head of trust and security. And so he, I assume, is dealing with all the misinformation that is being spewed out onto the platform. There were efforts before Musk bought Twitter to kind of rein that in, to screen it out. How did that change when he got there? Yeah, so Yoel's job, he's the head of trust and safety, like you said, and he's really in charge of stopping misinformation and hate speech speech on the platform. But what's another word for that? It's content moderation. And this is a term that Elon Musk really abhors. So when he buys the company that first day, I believe, uh, Yoel gets a Slack message telling him that Elon Musk wants to meet with him. And he's convinced, this is it. I'm losing my job. There's no way that this guy is going to want to keep me here. So he goes and he meets with Elon Musk one-on-one. -on -one, and what he finds is that Elon Musk is really worried that employees are going to try and sabotage him. And Yoel says, oh, there's actually tools in place. I can kind of lock down the code base so that not everyone has access to some of the internal tooling. I can help protect you. And he also mentions that there's an important election in Brazil coming up and they need to really be aware that misinformation could be rampant on the platform. And to his complete surprise, Elon Musk is game. He says, yes, that's really important. We need to um, fix that. And he gives Yoel a fair amount of power to start um, making some positive changes at the company. And he even defends him when other people start coming after him. However, their relationship swiftly deteriorates, and we can get into that. Yeah, well. so how did what was the pivot point there? Yeah, so the mandates kind of keep coming, and, and Yoel is getting, at first, he's willing to work with Elon Musk because Elon seems pretty supportive of the work, but he's getting nervous because one of the first projects that Elon Musk wants done is he wants to relaunch Twitter Blue, the subscription product that the app has. And what he wants to do is- for This the, is the blue check marks? Yeah. The, well, it wasn't before. It was, it was a subscription that got you different perks. And blue check marks were handed out to high profile people. But Elon Musk wants to tie those two things to, together. He wants to allow anyone who pays a subscription fee of $8 a month to get a blue check mark. And Yoel is really worried about this. He says the platform could be overrun by impersonators. Originally, Elon wants to launch it the day before the midterm elections in the United States. And Yoel is literally begging him not to. He lays out this 10-page document talking about all of the things that can go wrong. Elon Musk finally relents and launches it the day after the midterms. But all of those things that Yoel had warned about start to come to fruition. And he realizes that if he stays at the platform, people are just going to assume he's bad at his job and it's not worth it to him professionally. And so ultimately he resigns. And in the days that follow, Elon Musk starts targeting him with an harassment campaign, saying that he might even be a pedophile. Yoel Roth is an openly gay man. This campaign has absolutely no basis in reality, but it causes him to have to flee from his home, sell his home and go into hiding. Hmm. And did all these, this, this like, you know, 
uh, tsunami of fake accounts and all the things that, uh, you know, the journalists, a lot of journalists losing their blue checks. So you couldn't tell who was who. Did that bother Musk at all? He's bothered by impersonators, but he is waging a simultaneous war against the mainstream press. He doesn't like the journalism industry. He's very suspicious of the media. And so when he sees journalists leaving the platform, he doesn't seem particularly preoccupied with this. What he's worried about and what we can see from Slack messages that he's sending employees at this time is when people are impersonating him. (laughs) And he's asking people to ban those accounts. But it's not clear whether he's overly concerned with the kind of rampant misinformation on the platform as a whole. Got some listener comments here. Uh, One listener writes, I saw so many tweets from right-wing groups in Italy showing videos of them beating up refugees that I couldn't go back to X Twitter. I'm hoping the platform dies. I disagree with one billionaire having this much power. Another listener writes, is Zoe concerned about Elon attacking her for what she wrote in this book? And how is she insulating herself from any legal attacks or worse? Um, Yeah, that was a concern for me. I'm an independent journalist. And of course, getting sued by the richest person in the world is incredibly scary. But I respect my sources. And I felt like if they were willing to tell their stories and put their names on the record in this book, then I could take the risk of telling their story as well. Well, one of the people that you profile, Randall Lynn, uh, is a machine learning engineer. He was very excited to work with Musk when he gets there. And then he was later accused of feeding you, talking to you and, and feeding you inside information, which I guess you can, can you verify that? He said he wasn't. Can you verify that? Yeah, I'd never spoken to him until he was, after he was fired. Yeah, and I think now he works maybe across the street here at OpenAI. But, um, you know, this is just like the collateral damage. Yeah. Employees would say with Elon Musk, you don't necessarily need to give the right answer. You need to give the least fireable answer. And so when I started to come out with stories about his declining view count and the way that he was firing people who were trying to tell him the truth, Elon Musk became very preoccupied with this. And he he doesn't really raise his voice or yell, but he banged his fist on the table during this one meeting and he said, find the leaker. And so we don't know what exactly happened, but it seems plausible that someone came to him and said, I found the leaker. It's this person. And just gave a name. And unfortunately, Randall Lynn, who, as you said, was completely pro-Elon Musk and was very close to him and put on all of his top projects, he became collateral damage. Yeah. All right. We're going to go to the phones again. The number, if you want to join us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. Um, talking with Zoe uh, Schiffer about her new book, Extremely Hardcore, Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. And we're going to start up in Petaluma. And Stephen, welcome. Hi, good morning. Um, I applaud Zoe Siffer's extraordinary courage and uh, journalistic integrity. However, uh, I'm one of these, and I'm no Luddite, I'm one of these people that just do not comprehend why anybody would use Twitter. I find it to be a toxic sewer of, you know, wannabe insult comics and fake news app. And, and, and I think it's really her journalism in this country. I think it's put our culture on a social discourse that is just dreadful um i he's a brilliant man musk uh but i think twitter his purchase for twitter will probably go down as one of the dumbest technology purchases ever hmm. in the world yeah zoe let me and ask I you like fails, to be honest with you yeah well i'm sure you're you're not alone Stephen. um how do you use x 
I don't use it at, at all, all anymore. At no, all. I feel like as a journalist, it's actually irresponsible at this point to be on the platform for some of the reasons that the caller just pointed out. I used to use it like many people in journalism did to get the news out. And I felt like it was a really important platform for that reason. An event would take place in real life. And then there would kind of be a simultaneous reaction to that event on Twitter where we could all kind of go back and forth and talk about it. But when you have someone who owns the platform, who's actively trying to go to war with the press, and he himself is amplifying misinformation, I feel like to be on that platform is to legitimize what he's doing. And I find it incredibly irresponsible that people are still doing that. Yeah. You know, one of the early, um, I don't know, uh, issues around Twitter and Elon Musk was the censorship, so, so to speak, of Trump. Donald Trump. And you write that he doesn't really like Trump, uh, but he just doesn't like this, what he sees as censorship. Um, and yet he seems, as the, as you describe him, very much like Trump. Uh, yeah. Is that your impression? Like, it's all about people telling him what he wants to hear, firing people who don't, uh, and getting attention. You know, all attention is good. Yeah, they have a lot of similar qualities. They both have kind of this almost Teflon-like quality where no matter what they seem to do, their popularity and their core audience just doesn't seem to leave them or care. Trump actually, Twitter for years failed to take stronger action against the president, even when he was spreading misinformation about the vote and other important aspects of the platform. Um, And the idea that conservatives have and still have that, that they were being silenced on the platform, it just isn't borne out by the research. And yet the narrative continues. Yeah. He got into a very high profile, I don't know what it was, disagreement challenge with Mark Zuckerberg. Uh, they were, they were going to do a, you know, he, he challenged each other to a cage match. Uh, what, like, how did that go over inside the company? I think at that point, people were and so- Maybe just tell us a little background, how that yeah. came about. <laughs> so- Um, As Twitter is really struggling to retain users and advertisers, Meta, a company down the road in Silicon Valley, sees an opportunity for a text-based social network. And so they spin up this Twitter alternative called Threads. And Elon Musk really sees this as a direct challenge. These two men, Mark Zuckerberg and Elon Musk, had disliked each other for years for various reasons. They had kind of a bitter rivalry. But Elon Musk sees this as a direct attack, which in some ways it is. And in July, he makes a very ill-advised decision to rate limit users on Twitter. And what that means is as you're scrolling, you can only scroll for a couple seconds before a pop-up comes up and you're unable to continue accessing the app. And users are really upset by this. But Meta sees this moment as the perfect time to launch threads. And so a few days after this happens, when the app is essentially unusable, they launch a Twitter alternative and instantly it becomes the most downloaded app in the United States. And so a rivalry kind of reaches ahead and um, Elon Musk suggests a cage match and it could have ended there except Mark Zuckerberg on Instagram says send me location and suddenly it looks like it could be a reality but of course they go back and forth Mark Zuckerberg who's been training for this type of fight actually for quite a while and is very confident in his abilities seems ready to go but Elon Musk starts making excuses he has a surgery not sure if he can make the, the fight time and so eventually it culminates to absolutely nothing. I mean, this is just like male egos out of control. Yeah. I mean, as a journalist, I part of me was praying it would happen because it just would have been <laughs> so absurd. But I think it's probably good that it didn't. Talking with Zoe Schiffer, managing editor at Platformer. Her new book is called Extremely Hardcore Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. And we'd like to hear from you, especially if you used to work there or maybe if you still do. Um, and, you know, how are you using the platform now, if at all? What changes have you noticed? Give us a call at 866-733-6786, 866 
888-333-6786, or you can find us uh, on all the platforms. We're at KQED Forum. Um, is the, does the company today, you know, bear any resemblance to what it was before he bought it? I mean, our, obviously, there's a huge turnover in staff. It's a lot smaller than it was, and they're probably focused on different things. I don't do they even have a communications media staff anymore. Um, they have someone who acts as the head of communications, but that is absolutely not his title because I don't think Elon Musk allows that title to exist at his company. Is that because he's just like I'm? I'm the I'm the media guy. Is yeah, that he, he wants a direct it? relationship with employees and with users. He doesn't want to have to go through a comms department. Um, it's interesting because the product actually, kind of the core of Twitter, or now called X, remains largely unchanged. The platform is similar to what it used to be, except for the ads are worse, the algorithm seems worse. It's a little harder to get a feel for the conversation of the day. Um, But the company is radically different from it used to be. Even the look of it. You used to walk in, there was an enormous Black Lives mural on the wall. There were framed iconic tweets on the wall. It had a warm collegial vibe. Now it looks darker. It kind of has a spaceship feel. There are beds for people to sleep in if they need to stay the night in the office. The rooms have all been renamed to variations of X. I think the conference room that Elon Musk works in is called Sexy. And (laughs) um, it's a very different, it's a different workplace than it used to be. And no yoga room. No yoga room. What was it about that? You mentioned that in the book. Like that was one of the things that just like drove him up the wall. Yeah. I mean, he walks into Twitter and he's completely appalled by the opulence that he sees. I think for any of us who've worked in Silicon Valley or seen a lot of these companies, wouldn't have been surprised. Twitter did have a nice office, but it wasn't radically nicer than Google or Meta or any of the other big tech companies. But to Elon Musk, it was such a symbol of this excess and this lack of hardcore attitude, for lack of a better term. And so he really works quickly to eradicate all of those things. Got some listener comments here. Jeff writes, I interviewed for an engineering job at Twitter about eight years ago, pre-Elon. Its office on Market Street was saturated in booze. They had a whole floor dedicated to a beer and wine bar. Employees worked at long tables, each of which had a pile of hard liquor bottles at one end that would have made the old Trader Vicks on Van Ness Avenue blush. I didn't get a job offer out of it. In retrospect, I suppose that was a blessing. Um, Did people sort of, (laughs) does that sound accurate to you, number one, or is that sort of an exaggeration? I've never heard that before. I mean, I believe the the commenter, but um, I don't think that was there, at least when I visited the office in the past. We know that Twitter did have glamorous parties where people would let loose. There would be alcohol. The executive team would do lip sync battles and breakdowns on stage. So there was kind of a goofiness to Twitter before Elon Musk came on board. But again, I don't think it was that different from many of the other companies that we've seen, especially in terms of the perks, the benefits, and kind of the the vibe in the office with alcohol in particular. Yeah. And the former CEO, Jack Dorsey, doesn't strike me as a, a party animal. But uh, no. <laughs> maybe maybe he was. Who knows? Um, we're talking with Zoe Schiffer about her new book, Extremely Hardcore, Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. And uh, we've got a break coming up, but we do want to hear from you. You can email your thoughts to forum at kqed.org or find us on all of our social media channels. We're at KQED Forum. Or give us a call right now at 866-733-6786. Again, 866-733-6786. I'm Scott Schaefer here this hour for Mina Kim. We've got more to come. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. 
Set ten years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. And welcome back to Forum. Scott Schaefer here this hour. And uh, for me and Kim, we're talking with Zoe Schiffer about her new book. It's called Extremely Hardcore Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. If you want to join the conversation, tell us what you think about the changes you've seen on the platform, or maybe you've left the platform um, like many have. Give us a call at 866-733-6786. Again, it's 866-733-6786. Zoe, we're coming up. I mean, we're not coming up. We're in an election year now. Um and I'm wondering, you know, how you think and how people either who worked at Twitter or who work there now at X, uh, how do they think about that? As a, how big a problem is it? I mean, is it kind of quaint given that we now have to worry about AI and artificial intelligence? I think that they're worried about it to the extent that it will be embarrassing if election disinformation and misinformation goes viral on the platform. But we have yet to see that they're making a real investment in trust and safety and in content moderation in a way that would make us confident that they have the tools in place to combat these types of campaigns. We have to look no further than the violence that broke out on October 7th in the Middle East. The platform overnight was overrun with misinformation that was being elevated and distributed by blue check accounts. Researchers who wanted to investigate where these disinformation campaigns were coming from were unable to access the API because Elon Musk had shut down researcher access and charged an exorbitant fee that researchers just can't pay. And more than that, in the first few days after the violence broke out, it looked like the blue check accounts that were spreading misinformation were actually going to share in ad revenue. So essentially, they were going to be paid to spread misinformation about the attacks. And this was kind of the culmination of so many of Elon Musk's product and policy decisions. In the weeks that have followed, we have seen other crises on the platform in the form of viral AI-generated videos and photos of celebrities that are non-consensual and shouldn't be going viral. And we're seeing the platform essentially play whack-a-mole. They're being very retroactive in terms of how they deal with it. And I think a lot of people are worried, myself included, that that this is going to get worse and worse as the election approaches. Is there any repercussion to him and to the company for all this? The fight has become so politicized, and Elon Musk really does have the backing of House Republicans. When the FTC or the SEC has tried to step in and hold Elon Musk accountable, what have we seen? We've seen House Republicans jump to his aid and essentially say that these agencies are harassing him and they're trying to limit his free speech. So we do see government agencies starting to try and hold him accountable. And at the same time, it's difficult for them to do so because it has become so political. We're talking with Zoe Schiffer about her book on Elon Musk inside Twitter, The Takeover. We're going to go to the phones. And again, the number, if you want to join us, 866-733-6786, 866-733-6786. And we're going to go to AJ in San Francisco. Welcome. Thank you. And hi, Zoe. Thank you for that uh, 
awesome uh, intro on uh, the book and um, and Elon. Just a quick comment. I think the guy, regardless of some of these things that we've heard um, now and just over the past few years, um, the negative connotations versus all of the good and the innovation that uh, Elon has contributed towards economy, society, towards the world, all the different projects from PayPal to SpaceX to um, the Boeing company and Tesla. I mean, where would these things be without him? So it's easy to paint him in kind of this obscure bad guy uh, picture. But at the end of the day, uh, he's done a lot of good for all of us that we continue to benefit from either financially or um, socially. And uh, I think it's just the beginning of uh, even better things to come. I don't work for Elon Musk, never have. I would love to if I had the opportunity because I think he's a brilliant guy and um, would love to be on that journey with him. Yeah, AJ, thanks very much for that. Zoe, uh, he, Musk is a complex dude, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the caller is exactly right. If Elon Musk had stopped in 2021, when again, he's time person of the year, he is the richest man in the world, he's built incredible companies, putting rockets into space with SpaceX and putting electric vehicles in the map on the map in the way that they weren't there previously with Tesla. I think his popularity would have been sky high. The people who'd followed him closely always had criticism about how he treated workers in the factories, that he was very anti-union. But I think the majority of us saw Elon Musk as a genius. So while I agree with the caller that we can't discount all of the positive things that Elon has done for society and especially for the environment, at the same time, he kind of did this to himself. He seems to not be able to help himself. And he has gotten more political and more overtly fringe and right wing over time. And so he's jumping into the fray himself. Here's a comment from a listener who says, I worked for Tesla during construction and uh, doing construction and managing projects. Elon would show up and completely take apart what you did and have you do it differently. And the next day you come back and redo it. That's his style. Fire drills. They're big, rich kids that push people around like chess pieces on a board. Um, do you think, Zoe, that there are skills that made him successful with companies like Tesla or SpaceX that just didn't translate to Twitter? I think he was a really different person when he was building Tesla and SpaceX than the person that he is today. He has a very strong intuition. What employees will say is that, especially when we're talking about software and building a global social platform, he's not particularly tech savvy, but he's got a good instinct. He's got a good sense for things. We saw this play out really well when he was fundraising for Twitter. And for example, Sam Bankman-Fried wanted to give him a lot of money. At the time, Sam Bankman-Fried, the leader of FTX, one of the biggest crypto platforms in the world, was wildly popular. Popular, a major Democratic donor. But Elon Musk has a conversation with him and he feels very suspicious and he doesn't feel like the guy actually has the money. We find out in the months that follow that Elon Musk was actually exactly right. The problem is that Elon Musk today doesn't have a lot of people around him who will tell him the truth or push back on him. And so I think his instincts have led him astray when he's owning Twitter in a way that they didn't always with Tesla and SpaceX. You talked about his kind of wading in toward right-wing politics. I mean, he's gotten a lot of attention and notoriety for retweeting anti-Semitic things. Uh, and, you know, there are allegations, lawsuits at Tesla about uh, racism and treatment of black workers, Latino workers, and so on. Um, you know, what do people who work for him, what have they told you about in that regard about him? 
I think in, on one level, he's impulsive and a little bit clueless. He'll tell the same joke again and again. He'll be scrolling on his phone and see a meme that's just not that funny. And he'll show everyone and they'll kind of laugh hysterically because they know that that's what he wants. And so I think, again, like he just doesn't have a lot of people around him who will say like, you really shouldn't tweet that. You really shouldn't say that. And at the same time, he has said himself that he if it's a question of limiting his free speech in order to protect the business or saying exactly what he wants to say when he wants to say it and hurting the business financially, he'll take that latter option. And he does again and again. Some more listener comments here. Uh, is it possible for a Twitter-like platform to not devolve into a rage and misinformation outlet? If so, how? Uh, Zoe, you're, you, you use threads, which uh, Zuckerberg Meta started. Um, what are your thoughts, though? Yeah, I mean, I think that one thing that Elon Musk's acquisition of Twitter did is it kind of um, increased the speed of this shift toward a decentralized web and a decentralized social network. This idea that we can take our followers with us wherever we go. And social media will almost function more like email, where you have one provider, but you can talk to people on any other platform. And more than that, you'll be able to choose your own experience. The idea of platforms like Blue Sky and Mastodon is that you'll be able to choose if you want a social media experience where there is a lot more content moderation, where you never see hate speech or even nude images. You can have that experience while someone else can use the same platform and choose to have those controls taken away. They can see all of the content that they want to see. And where does threads come down in that spectrum? So it is planning to federate and be a decentralized platform like these other ones. And so the idea is in the future, it'll function in somewhat of a similar way. Here's a comment from Jackie who writes, when I was employed by a fire agency, we taught, uh, we were taught how to use various social media platforms in an emergency. It was a laudable goal. However, I'm really concerned that the government continues to use X as a way to reach out to the public. Shouldn't the government divorce itself from X? Is it really the best way to communicate to the populace? It's, it's hard to, hard to quit, isn't it? It's hard to quit. I mean, it was hard for me to quit. I have over 100,000 followers on that platform that I worked really hard to attain. So of course, it's difficult to walk away from. But I think we all have a responsibility to do that, particularly in this moment, when there are viable alternatives. If you continue to post on Twitter, you're going to continue legitimizing the platform, whether you're a government entity or not. And I think particularly with governments, so much of the use of Twitter was in those kind of breaking news moments when something bad happened in the world and people needed to know what was going on. And so I think we need more them more than anyone else almost to adopt these alternative platforms. You know, I think a lot of individuals as well as news organizations and others, they they, they stick with X because they don't want to lose those followers that you, you yeah. mentioned, 100,000 followers that you worked hard to get. Do you have any thoughts or advice for people? Like, how do you get them to follow you to threads? Yeah. Well, one thing that I have seen, you know, when I do go on X for work because I just want to see what's going on, and I'm always surprised to see that journalists still are posting on the platform, particularly because they're getting almost no traction. Even large follower accounts, it feels like the changes that have been made to the algorithm to move away from news and journalism in particular are really impacting these accounts. And so I think there's no time like the present to start building up your following on the other platforms. And and if you believe in your work and you do know that you're doing good work, you're putting out good content, the followers will come. I think if you really believed in yourself, you would be on the platform that was supporting the work, not actively trying to dismantle it. Here's another uh, listener who writes on Discord, uh, didn't Musk mostly sweep in on startups rather than build the technology? Yeah, he um, he did. You know, he's not an original founder of Tesla, for example. That said, you know, 
I think that the founder title is almost a little arbitrary because he has been enormously influential in building out those companies. And he's very involved in kind of the day-to-day operations. That's less true at Twitter. And when it isn't is true and when he has been involved, employees say that he doesn't really seem to know what he's talking about when it comes to kind of the software of a global social platform. But yeah, I mean, I think that there is truth to what the commenter is saying. One of the people you profile in your book uh, describes him as essentially a quality control guy. Yeah. What does that mean? Yeah. So Tesla engineers would say that Elon Musk is primarily a quality control guy. And what that means is, you know, he would drive his Tesla to work and get there and he would have a lot of feedback for the engineers. He would say, I want this tweak and this change on my Tesla. And they would change the car accordingly until it drove to his exact specifications. And what they said is sometimes those changes would have positive um, impacts for the rest of Tesla users. It would be a change that they would say, oh, that's actually a really good idea and we can roll it out everywhere. But if it wasn't one of those changes, if it was just something that Elon Musk wanted and probably wasn't going to be positive for everyone else, it didn't impact them because they didn't have to change everyone else's car. Unfortunately, he's kind of rolled out the same strategy on Twitter where he really dictates and leads based on his own experience. And his experience on the platform is really unique. You cannot tweak Elon Musk's Twitter account and his experience on the platform and not impact everyone else because social media is more of a zero-sum game. As we saw on that day when he was getting all of the attention that he thought he deserved because they changed the algorithm overnight and all of us got to see just an entire feed of Elon Musk tweets. Yeah, which he probably thought was fantastic. He thought it was hilarious. He did. He was making jokes and laughing in the office. (laughs) This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations. You're listening to Forum. I'm Scott Schaefer in for Mina Kim. And we continue our conversation with Zoe Schiffer about her book, uh, "Hard, Extremely Hardcore, about inside Elon Musk's Twitter slash X. Um, you know, the way you're describing him, is, you know, you think about some of the brilliant uh, game changers in Silicon Valley, Steve Jobs, for example, um, maybe Larry Ellison, I don't know. Uh, but they, they're not people people, <laughs> you know, they do have this sort of like just incredible focus on the, you know, with, with jobs, I think it was the way things looked and the way they felt and the user experience. Um, I mean, can you, is there someone out there who you think really is a more balanced kind of a personality who's leading a tech firm and is, is, you know, is, is also innovative and a big thinker? That's a good question. And I think it's hard. I mean, I think all of these people, when you reach that level of wealth and power, you do become a little weird, a little um, untethered to reality because... But which comes first, I would guess. <laughs> uh, I think that, you know, if we think of someone like Mark Zuckerberg, for example, he was he was an oddball, but I don't think he was like fundamentally weird in that way. But I think when you reach that level of fame, money and power, you have fewer people around you who will speak to you honestly. And, and that's true for a lot of billionaires. I think Elon Musk has a particular childishness about his humor, a kind of immaturity in some ways and an impulsiveness. And yet he's also able to make things happen that other people simply are not because they are more tied to reality. So I think it has benefits and it also has major costs. He also, uh, you write in the book, he has, I think you say, at least 10 children, uh, one of whom is trans. I think his oldest child is trans uh, and is now, you know, dissociated themselves from him. Um, what he does seem to have, you know, some, I know he's buddies with Dave Chappelle, who, you know, also has gotten into trouble with some of his comments about uh, tra- transgender folks. You know, any thoughts about, you know, what, what it is about that particular topic that seems to set him off? 
Yeah. So again, this this goes back to the idea of the woke mind virus, this idea that liberal politics has just gone too far. It's too censorious and it needs to be stopped. This really started because his daughter um, was starting to distance herself from him. This is the trans daughter that you're speaking about. And Elon Musk really blames she's becoming a Marxist after high school. And he blames this on the elite uh, high school that she'd gone to in Los Angeles, the school called Crossroads. And he really feels like the school is overrun with the woke mind virus. Then he looks at Twitter, which is banning Donald Trump. And he says Twitter is overrun with the woke mind virus. And so he sees it kind of everywhere he looks and he feels like it's his job to try and stop it. There's this great line in a New Yorker article about him where Sam Altman, I believe the CEO of OpenAI says, Elon Musk desperately wants to save the world, but only if he can be the person to save it. And I think that is so true of Elon Musk. Russ writes, uh, Twitter seems hard to quit, but it's actually not that hard. I almost never use Twitter anymore. I feel better and have more time. I don't miss it. Um, Zoe, it seems like, you know, all this stuff, we're, we're constantly, all of us on our phones, whether we're looking at X or, you know, TikTok or Instagram, whatever it might be, um, you know, where do you see it going? I mean, do you, you have a young child? I mean, do you, yeah. I know we, there have been articles in the past about some of the tech titans who won't let their kids even have an iPad or a, an iPhone until they're a certain age. What are your thoughts about that? I mean, when we're talking about X in particular, I think that the business is really shaky. And I think the momentum in Silicon Valley is so geared towards generative AI. And Elon Musk himself has, since he bought the company, started a generative AI company called XAI that I think his focus is going to shift to that company. And while there will be synergy between these two platforms, I see X as a way for him to train, get a bunch of data and train his large language models, but not be his primary focus moving forward. That said, a lot of his ego is wrapped up in this platform, and I think it would be very hard for him to walk away completely. What do you um, hear from the folks who used to work there, you know, in terms of like, how are they doing? I mean, I can imagine having gone through something like that, you'd have a kind of PTSD almost. Yeah, I think people jokingly call it trauma bonding. You know, I think it's difficult for them because Twitter, despite the fact that it had a relatively small user base compared to, say, Facebook, it did have this outsized cultural influence. And for the people who worked there, they really took that responsibility seriously. They felt like it was part of these major elections, these major cultural moments. And it was kind of the center of the conversation for a certain part of the internet. And so I think when you leave that company and you go to work at Apple or Netflix, one of these other very prestigious firms, there is a kind of a sense of loss because you're not part of this kind of beating heart of the culture of the internet in the same way that you once were. And the people who are still there, I don't know if you hear from them. Yeah, there's a few different groups of people. I mean, I think the majority of the workforce at this point is very bought into the kind of cult of personality around Elon Musk, and they really do believe what he is building. Those people aren't as likely to talk to me, although some do. And then there are people who are sticking around because they're on visas or they need the health care or simply the job market hasn't rebounded and it's difficult to find another tech job right now. And so those people, I think, are a little bit unhappy still, but are sticking it out for personal reasons. Yeah. All right. Well, the building is still there. The the blue Twitter symbol is not. You got the big X there now. And uh, we'll continue following, see what happens. It is, uh, I, I, as a journalist, I do find it hard to quit. Uh, but uh, maybe, maybe I'll put more emphasis on threads. We'll see. All right. That is it for this hour of Forum. Uh, Zoe Schiffer, her new book is called Extremely Hardcore Inside Elon Musk's Twitter. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Forum. Thanks to my guest and to all of you, all of our listeners, for participating in the show this hour. I'm Scott Schaefer, in for Mina Kim. You've been listening to Forum. Forum.
Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country. We need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.